You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, for there is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... It tells us about who we are as sinners and it tells us about who you are as Savior. And God, as your word is opened and as we've just read it, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear it and to live it and to embrace it, that we would say with the psalmist that your steadfast love, your love that loves us despite our sin, despite our wickedness, that your steadfast love is precious and that we would take shelter in the shadow of your wings. So we pray that you would move by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to Psalm 36, and the ushers are coming up and down the aisle with copies of God's Word. Want to make sure everyone has a chance to follow along. Psalm 36. Uh, This psalm is just like the song we just sang. This psalm, it feels like two psalms. Uh, There's the first part that talks about human sin and the guilt and the shame that goes along with our sin. And then the song changes dramatically to then talk about the greatness of God's love and the invitation to take shelter in the shadow of his wings. Over the course of this psalm, we're going to see three things. This psalm isn't isn't just a beautiful poem. It also teaches us profound uh, truth. Three things that it helps us better understand. Here's the first thing. It helps us understand our sin. Let's look closely at Psalm 36. It begins with the title, To the Choir Master of David, the Servant of the Lord. And the first word of the psalms is the the word a transgression. A transgression is one of the many words in the Bible used to describe sin. A transgression here, it literally means to cross over a boundary, that there was a rule, that there was a line, and, and they crossed over it. Picture uh, in, a, in a relay, for instance, that one team ran past a certain boundary and another team got a medal because, the, because of the disqualification of crossing that boundary. That was a transgression. And so, and so, It begins with this idea, but it goes deeper than just an accident. Oh, I crossed the line, I didn't mean to. Transgression refers to a rebellious act, an intentional decision. I saw that you put the line there, but I'm gonna cross it on purpose. That's the kind of sin that's being described here. 
In order to understand sin, we need to know where it comes from. It says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. It speaks deep in his heart. There's a footnote in your ESV that that says, "Even, even deep in my heart, David says. Where does sin come from? Where does, this, where does it originate? It comes from deep inside the heart. Even if you're a Christian and have been given a new heart, the Bible still tells us that there are passions and desires that are at war within us. We are fighting against the flesh. It comes from within us. We live in a world that, that wouldn't even use the word sin. It would use you know, misbehavior or acting out, but there's always an excuse for why someone does something they shouldn't do. You, you blame their parents, you blame their upbringing, you blame society, you blame some sort of a scientific or psychological label that you can place on that person. Or we ourselves are always making excuses for why we do what we do. Well, we were provoked. I'm simply retaliating because someone else has done something to me. But the Bible paints a different picture. If you're gonna understand sin, you need to understand the importance of taking responsibility for your own actions. Because where transgression starts, where sin starts, is within us. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And this is what is being said in the heart. This is what is being contemplated in the heart. It says, there is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God in his eyes. This is where sin comes from. It starts in the heart, and it starts in a heart that doesn't fear God. No fear of God, no fear of sin. No fear of God, no fear of consequences. When you take away the fear of God, you welcome sin into your life. This is where sin comes from. Sin comes from us putting ourselves in the place of God. This is what the Bible tells us again and again. This is what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you turn with me in your New Testament to the book of Romans, find Romans chapter 3. So you'll find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, and then the book of uh, Romans. Romans uh, chapter 3. This is uh, the most robust, the most clear definition of sin in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. And Paul is trying to show how every single human being, doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter what your parents believed, doesn't matter what your background is, every single human being is a sinner. Transgression speaks to all of us in our hearts. So in Romans 3, as he's defining and unpacking what sin is, verse 10 it says, as it is written... And it's important that he said as it is written because he's about to quote several different Old Testament passages. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 right there. 
And he goes on in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. That's Psalm 5, verse 9. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are quick to swift, to swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. That's Proverbs 1:16 and Isaiah 59, 7. And then look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting Psalm 36, verse 1. When Paul is trying to define what sin is, he's going through the whole Bible. He's going through the whole Old Testament, showing all of these examples. This is what sin is. This is what sin is. And then he's looking for one verse to sum it all up. How, how can I encapsulate everything that sin is? And he uses Psalm 36, verse 1. There's no fear of God in their eyes. That's where sin comes from. And when you don't fear God, you begin to flatter yourself. When you take God off the throne, it doesn't take long before you find yourself on the throne. Look at verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. This is where sin comes from. It starts with wickedness speaking to us in our hearts. It's telling us to disobey God, to disregard God, to disrespect God, to have no fear of God. And what that results in is self-flattery, pride. Sin is ultimately not about behavior, it's about belief. It starts with what you believe about God. If you believe that God doesn't exist, then you don't fear him. If you believe that God will just forgive because you, you define God as, as, as being loving and your version of loving means that he would overlook all of your sin, then you don't fear him. Sin ultimately begins with your theology. So it starts in the heart. There's no fear of God. Then it comes to pride. He flatters himself in his own eyes. And how does he flatter himself? It says that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated now, this was written in Hebrew, and it's poetry. Sometimes it's even hard to understand what English poets are talking about, isn't it? And that's kind of the idea. Poetry is sort of like this mysterious thing. What, what does he mean by, by using that specific choice of words? And what does he mean when he said his, that his sin cannot be found out and hated? Uh, immediately our mind thinks, well, he's trying to hide his sin from God or hide his sin from other people and act like he has it all together. But what he's actually describing here is someone is so busy flattering themselves that they can't find their own sin. They don't think that they have a sin problem. That is the most dangerous place to be. The person who's blind and doesn't know it. The, this person is so full of pride, has their eyes off of God, they can't tell that they're a sinner. They don't know that they need help. And so they, they can't find their sin and they can't hate their sin. They just look at themselves and say, I'm awesome. I don't hate anything that's happening in my life. I don't hate anything that I do because they've become so accustomed. There's no fear of God in their eyes. And so that wickedness in their heart is also making excuses and rationalizations for all the bad things that they do. And so this person is so proud because they've made themselves God. And even if they know they've broken God's law, even if their own conscience is telling them they've done something wrong, they say, no, I'm on the throne. And I decide what's right and what's wrong. And I say that I am a good a person, which is not true. That's why in verse three, it says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. 
deceit. This person is lying to everyone else, lying to themselves. They think they have it all together. They're flattering themselves. And now we're actually getting into the sinful behavior. And all of us can identify with verse three. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. We can all remember times in which we said things we shouldn't have said that caused trouble, that hurt other people. Some of us said those things this morning and need to repent and need to apologize. We all know what it's like to have trouble come out of our mouths. We all know what it's like to have deceit come out of our mouths when we're afraid of consequences. So we lie or tell half-truths to get out of things. So we all sin with our mouths. Then it goes on to say, he's in verse 3, he ceased to act wisely and to do good. Notice the word act and the word do. We don't just sin with our mouths. We sin with the things that we do. We sin with our actions. And then even, even deeper it goes, verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Notice the word plots. It's our, it's our thinking. We sin with our mouths. We sin with our actions. We sin with our very thoughts, lustful thoughts, bitter thoughts, thoughts of revenge. All of these things, that's all sinful behavior. Now, the thing that's so powerful about God's word in helping us understand sin is it shows us where it comes from. So often in our lives, we experience verse three and verse four. We say something we know we shouldn't have said. We do something we feel ashamed of. We thought something and now we feel guilty about it. And we wanna stop talking like that. We wanna stop acting like that. And we wanna stop thinking like that. And so we focus on the behavior. But God loves us too much just to deal with the behavior. He tells us the reason why you're behaving that way is because you've been flattering yourself, verse two. And the reason why you're flattering yourself is because there's no fear of God in your heart. If you're ever going to understand sin, if you're ever going to experience sin, you need to know where it comes from. That's why I find this diagram so helpful about a tree. Sinful behavior, that's up at the top of the tree. That's, that's the things we say, the things we do, the things that we think, the things we wanna deal with. When, and, but we think, if I just take all the fruit off the tree, if I just cut all the leaves and cut off all the branches, then I'll be, then I'll feel good about myself finally. But you're not dealing with the pride that is leading to you behave that way. And the pride is coming from the roots, which is something that's under the surface, that's happening in your heart. There's no fear of God. That's, and in order to deal with sin, you gotta get out the shovel and the spade of the gospel of Jesus Christ and uproot the unbelief, uproot the lack of fear of God, replace it with faith and humility, and that is the only way that our behavior will be transformed. And Psalm 36 fits perfectly within this diagram. Unbelief, it starts with unbelief. Verse one, there's no fear of God. Pride. He flatters himself in verse two. Sinful behavior, words are trouble and deceit, cease to act wisely and do good, plots trouble, a way that is not good, does not reject evil. Listen, God loves you. Psalm 36 is in the Bible to show you that the way to overcome sin is not to focus exclusively on the behavior but to take two steps back and to focus on what do you believe about God? 
what seeds, what lies have been planted in your life and are taking root that is resulting in the fruit of that sin. You will never be able to deal with sinful behavior until you deal with your belief about God. So it's so important that we understand sin. And it's so important that once we understand sin and realize that it comes from the fact that we have no fear of God, then we gotta grow in the fear of God. And so Psalm 36 then helps us do that. It gets our eyes off of our sin and gets us focused on the greatness of God. So here's the second thing we need to understand is understanding God. We gotta understand sin, but that's only, that's only the first step. And we've gotta understand God understand who he is. So verse five, this is this dramatic transition where the psalm just heads in a totally different direction from focusing on sin now to focusing on the Savior. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. A steadfast love, the, the Hebrew word there is, is hesed. Um, a hesed is, is the covenant love of God. There's a guy in our church who plays drums on our worship team. His name is Hesed. His, his parents wanted, every time that, every time that you meet Hesed, you're, you're reminded of God's incredible covenant faithful love, his reliable love, his never giving up always and forever love. And notice the analogy that the psalmist used. It, it reaches, it extends to the heavens. It's not talking about extending to the heavens like where the, where the angels and God's throne is. It's referring to out to where the stars are, the farthest galaxy, the, the furthest edge of the universe. That's how far God's love goes. Here's the amazing thing. Like I'm not, I'm not a scientist by, <laughs> by any stretch, but I'm fascinated by the fact that just even in the last uh, half century or so, physicists, and astronomers, as, as the Hubble telescope has gone out, as different, as different satellites have been launched, as we're seeing these different images, we've learned that the universe, the heavens, are actually expanding. That it's getting bigger and bigger. And when I, when I read Psalm 36 verse, seven, or verse five through that lens, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Our understanding of the heavens is always expanding. It is, it is always growing. Now, nothing in God can, can grow. He doesn't love us any more now than he, he did when we were first saved. But our understanding of his love is extending to the heavens. It goes on and on and on. 31 years ago at Camp Minyawe, when I became a Christian, Sitting there on my bunk as a, as a summer camper, I thought, I can't believe how much God loves me. His love is so big. His love is so vast. I thought, there's, there's nothing more I could know about God's love. And then fast forward when I'm, a, when I'm a teenager, 16, 17, trying to make sense of the world and trying to find out who I am and my identity and this whole new whack of sins enter into my life, but I experience his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. And then at that point, I'm thinking, 
I can't believe how much God loves me. It's so much more than I thought he loved me back then. It's expanding, it's extending. I think about my own, going through my 20s and my 30s and, and, and learning about my own sinfulness and seeing God lead me and help me and grow me and transform me and still love me despite my sin. I am more convinced of his love for me. It is bigger than I ever can imagine and I know I know that 10 years from now, I know that 10 days from now, I know that 10 minutes from now, my capacity to understand the greatness of God's love towards me will always be expanding. It extends to the heavens. That is so awesome. Then it says your faithfulness to the cloud. Whenever you hear, see the word steadfast love in the Bible, you can bet that faithfulness comes right after it. It's almost like they're synonyms that God makes promises. He keeps them. He is a, he, he is a faithful God. It extends a, to the clouds. Then in verse 6 it says, Your righteousness like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. You see, God loves us with this love that is greater than the heavens. But God is a just God. He is righteous and he is just. He always does what is right. And he always punishes what is wrong. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous if he let people get away with things if he let injustice go on. In fact, he wouldn't be loving if he allowed that. It's not that love and righteousness or his faithfulness and his justice are somehow contradictory to one another. No. God's love and God's righteousness are one in the same. And notice how the psalmist describes God's righteousness, his justice. It's like, a, it's like a, the mountain of God. A little while ago, my, uh, my parents celebrated their, uh, their 50th wedding anniversary and they um, uh, wanted to get together with us uh, as kids, and the kids were sort of planning the, these, um, these special events to, to sort of commemorate this, this incredible uh, moment in their lives. And uh, my parents still live in Hamilton where I grew up, and I had this idea that we would, you know, rent like a classy old car and kind of have them sit in the back like a convertible, and we'll drive them around Hamilton to these different spots of, of significance. And I, I had, the, you know, sort of had this idea, well, we'll do this, and, and I would say, well, hey, we'll go over to that restaurant. And then my sister, who still lives in Hamilton, say, like, um, that restaurant's not there anymore. Or we'll, we'll, we'll go over to that, to that park. We'll drive by that park and she'll be like, that's an apartment building now. Oh, no, we'll, we'll go remember that old, that old uh, store where we used to buy? Oh, that's a Walmart now. And all of these places that I thought, I, I sort of went away from Hamilton and I, and I thought, well, it's, it's still got to be the same. It's not. It's changed. It's different. But you know what? Hamilton has an escarpment. We call it the mountain. It's still there. It's still there. You know, you walk around a Brampton and you see these different plaques, you know, these, these brass plaques with writing on them describing, this used to be the site of this, and, and now it's a parking lot, but at some point it was a significant geographical place in the city of Brampton. I've never seen a plaque, I've never seen a bronze plaque anywhere that said, there used to be a mountain here. It's permanent. God's righteousness is permanent. We, 
We're living in a culture, in a society where we feel like the rug is being pulled out from under us, where justice and where righteousness seems to somehow be in flux, where things that our society used to say that was unhelpful, unhealthy, illegal, now is being said, this is actually good and healthy and should be not just legalized, it should be promoted. And there's this dramatic change in what our world understands as righteous and just. And we are being led by intellectuals and by politicians and just the, the way our culture is going in thinking that we are free just to choose and change what's right and what's wrong. And you need to be reminded what Psalm 36 says. His righteousness is like the mountain. It's not going anywhere. When David wrote this psalm a few centuries ago, certain things were right and certain things were wrong. And that is true today. Certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And it's like a mountain and it's never going to change. And we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be loving and we need to be gracious with people who disagree with us. But we need to make sure that our feet are firmly planted on that mountain of the righteousness of God. And then it says that his judgments are like the great deep. That when God acts in human history, it's, it's like the great deep. And again, some of us, we're living in this world and we, we, we watch the news or we see things happening in our own lives, things that are being done to us or done to people that we love. And we wonder, where is the justice of God in all of this? We need to understand that his judgments, his justice is like the great deep. We, you know, wade into the shallow water on the beach at the edge of the ocean, you know, up to our knees and we wonder, God, where's your justice? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you judging the wicked? Meanwhile, all we can see around us is what our limited understanding as one finite human being, trying to contemplate everything that's happening in the ocean below the surface, all of the currents, all of the tide, all of, all of the life that's happening there all under the surface, we have no clue what's going on. We know more about the moon and outer space than we do about the ocean on planet Earth. We are still discovering things about the depths that's, that take up most of this planet. And we need to understand that when God works, He's working on a deeper level than we could ever understand in macro ways, in politics, in human history, in micro ways, in our own lives. Read a book like the book of Habakkuk or a book like the book of Job. Habakkuk and Job and his friends, they're wading into the shallow area on the beach and wondering, where's your justice, God? And God shows up and speaks to Habakkuk. God shows up and speaks to Job and says, you don't know the half of it. My judgments are deep. There is more going on beneath the surface than you could ever understand. And so we need to trust in his steadfast love. We need to trust in his faithfulness, even when we can't see from our perspective that his judgments 
are being carried out. They're deep like the ocean. But how is this steadfast, loving God, this faithful God, how can he love us if he's so committed to judging sin? Because, I mean, we live in Psalm 36, verses one to four. We plot trouble on our beds. We say words we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. We think thoughts we shouldn't think. How can he still love us if he's righteous and just? The answer is found at the cross of Jesus Christ that we can look at Psalm 36 from the perspective of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the steadfast love of God. We see the faithfulness of God. He fulfilled his promise. And we see his sacrificial love that his son was sent to die for us. We also see his righteousness because he didn't just gloss over our sin, he punished our sin. He laid that punishment that all of us deserve on Jesus Christ. And we also see how deep his judgments are. Was there anything more unjust than the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth? Was there anything more confusing? If you were standing in the shallow end and watching what Jesus, what, what, what happened to Jesus, an innocent man being crucified for no reason, wouldn't you think based on the shallow end that this was completely horrible and unjust? But the judgments of God are like the ocean is deep. And God had a lot of things happening under the surface there, didn't he? Like taking away our sin and giving us eternal life. That's why at the end of a Psalm, uh, uh, ver- Psalm 36, verse 6, it says, man and beast you save, O Lord. I don't know if the psalmist was sort of looking back to the flood, because it talks about God's judgment like the ocean deep, and God did judge by bringing a big, deep amount of water in the flood, and then he saved man and beast. And the flood is really just a picture get into the ark and be saved. That's just a picture of us turn to the cross, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved from the judgment that is to come. So you gotta understand sin. You gotta understand God. When you understand sin and you understand God, that he's steadfast in his love and faithful, that he's righteous and just, that's gonna lead to something. That's gonna lead to joy, understanding joy. Take a look at verse seven. It says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Now, this is something awesome. This is where the majesty and magnificence of God contradicts everything that we think about economics. At the core of economics lies supply and demand. If there's a limited supply, There's an increased demand. If there isn't a lot of gasoline or oil available, the cost of gasoline or oil will go up. But here we've just been told that the steadfast love of God, it extends to the heavens. I mean, there's tons of it. It's so big, and yet it's precious. Isn't that amazing? It's so widely available, it's so vast beyond our comprehension, and yet if you have the privilege of taking hold of it, you will never want to let it go. How precious is your steadfast love. 
and the children of mankind are offered, in verse seven, to take shelter in the shadow of his wings. Just a beautiful poetic image of God sheltering, protecting, loving, bringing us close. Then he invites us over to his house, verse eight. The fe- they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. He, he, he invites us to the table. And, and it, there's so much abundance. He invites, so we're protected by the shadow of wings. Then we're provided for. There's protection. There's provision. The abundance of his house. And also a pleasure. For with you is a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This river of delights. God protects us. He provides for us. He gives us pleasure. So amazing. Notice how in verse 9, he connects the fountain of life with light. There's this, there's this water, and water normally reflects light, but here this water is, is bringing light. And all throughout the Bible, we see a connection between life and light. Think about Genesis chapter 1. Before God created life on earth, he took, he took a step before that, didn't he? He created light. There was light, and because there was light, now there could be life. And we, we see that theme woven throughout the Bible, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Look at John chapter 1, verse 4 here on the screen. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That we're all walking around in the dark, And when you're in the dark, it's scary. When you're in the dark, it's confusing. When you're in the dark, you can't truly embrace or delight in what's beautiful because you can't see it. But Jesus came to give us light, and from that light, it gives us life. And so now, confusion is replaced with clarity, and fear is replaced with courage. And before, we couldn't appreciate what was beautiful, but now we see things with new lenses. We see things with light. It changes everything. Then Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but notice this, have the light of life. Light and life go together. Psalm 36 says, in your light do we see light. He is a fountain of life. Now, Jesus came. He's the light of the world, and that light was life. Think about this. What did Jesus come to do? What ended up happening to the light? The light went into the darkness of the grave. When the light was crucified, darkness came over the whole land. What happened to the life? Jesus was the light and the life. What happened to the life? Life came into the world and the life that came into the world was killed, crucified. Not life, but death. You see, what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus took our darkness and Jesus took our death and it was put on him on the cross so that when he gloriously rose from the grave, he showered on us his light and his life. That's what he came to do for us. And then I love verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. He's mentioned the word steadfast love three times now. Once that it stretches to the heavens, Second, that it's precious, even though there's so much of it. And then third, he says, continue. Keep it coming, God. 
I know it's unfathomable. I know it's bigger than I could ever imagine. I know it's so magnificent beyond my comprehension and it's precious, but I want more of it. Is that what's happening in your heart? That you want more of the Lord, more of his peace, more of his grace, more of his spirit leading you, more worship, more love, more passion for him? That's what's being described here. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you, who have a relationship with you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Verse 11, it's a prayer of protection. Keep me under the shadow of your wings, God. Verse 11, it says, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Don't let me be trampled, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. It's it's an evil world out there. God, protect me and help me. But he knows the ultimate fate of what's going to happen to those who don't come under the shadow of God's wing. Verse 12, as though he's seeing in the future, he says, there, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Psalm 36 lays out two options. Like like so many passages in God's word, there's two ways. There's the way of God or is the way of the world. Verse 12 tells us where the way of the world ends up. You will lie fallen, you will be thrust down, and you will be unable to rise. And the way of God is to be protected in the shadow of his wings. What way are you going to choose? When Jesus, uh, just a Moments, days before he was crucified and rose again, he walked up to the city of Jerusalem, and this is what he had to say. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing Are you willing today? You're here today, you find yourself in church. Maybe you're raised by parents who go to church. Maybe you're married to someone who goes to church. And you're kind of like these people who, they live in Jerusalem. I mean, if anyone should know that the steadfast love of the Lord is higher than the heavens and faithfulness to the clouds, if anyone should know that, it would be the people of Jerusalem. And Jesus, notice how he is, again, just declaring his divinity, saying that he's God, He's saying, I have longed to put you in the shelter of my wings, but he says, you were not willing. Are you willing today? Are you willing to get off of that path that will lead to destruction and death and hell? And will you get onto that path that will lead to joy, protection, provision, and pleasure now and for all of eternity? You can make that decision. You can make that decision by admitting that you're a sinner. Admitting that Psalm 36 verses one to four describes you. You say things you shouldn't say, you do things you shouldn't do, you think thoughts you shouldn't think because you don't fear God. And then believing that God does have steadfast love and that he does love you, but that he is just and that your sin was paid for when Jesus died on the cross, believing that and then committing to follow him, taking refuge under the shadow of his wings. So we're gonna pray together right now. 
And if you wanna make that decision today, I just wanna invite you, you can pray along with me, you can either repeat after me quietly to yourself or pray this in your own words. But let's just uh, commit our, our hearts uh, to the Lord right now. And so God, I admit that I am a sinner. Things that I've said and done and thought have been in rebellion against you. And God, I believe that Jesus took the penalty that I deserve on the cross. And I commit right now to follow you, to obey you, and to live for you. I want to dwell in the shadow of your wings. Take me off of the path that I am on and put me onto your path, oh God. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who made that decision, Lord. I pray that they would sense your presence, your nearness of right now. And God, I pray for those of us who have already made that decision, maybe years and years ago or maybe more re recently, but we're, we're feeling the pull towards rebelling against you, towards the ways of the world, God. I pray that you would give us a greater vision of your love, your faithfulness, your righteousness, and your justice, God. And that we would come to your table and see the abundance and to see the delight and to see the joy that you offer to us. And so God, we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.